Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And we are, of course, covering Black History Month for February. And today it's pretty hard to imagine professional sports in the United States were once segregated. Perhaps especially a sport like boxing, where some of the biggest names, guys like Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, George Foreman, the recently departed Joe Frazier, are African-American. But at the turn of the 20th century, the idea that there could be a black heavyweight champion was impossible. And surprisingly, the issue wasn't just about a white man fighting a black man and the physical contact that that would necessitate, which unfortunately in the context of segregation, that kind of makes sense uh, where sharing a water fountain or sharing a waiting room was considered not okay. It's going to figure by extension that something as physical as boxing, where you're going to swap sweat and blood and embrace in the ring would also not be okay. But black and white boxers did fight each other. Exhibition matches weren't uncommon. And just as the white Major League Baseball players would barnstorm with their Negro League counterparts decades before integration, boxers of different races would fight at pretty much all levels, except at the highest level, the heavyweight championship. For several reasons, which we'll discuss some more, the heavyweight title was considered so prestigious, so honorable, it couldn't be sullied by a black contender, in some people's opinion, let alone a black champion. So it took Texas-born Jack Johnson, we're not talking about the singer, of course, we're talking about the boxer, to break that color line. And to do it, he had to be not only a powerful fighter, but really dogged in his pursuit of the fight, trying to get somebody to actually fight him. He hounded his potential opponents, knowing that eventually the honor of defending that title, which was so such an important thing in the boxing world, plus, of course, the purse money that would come with defending it would eventually make it worthwhile for a white champion to step into the ring and fight with a black man. So first, we're going to give you a little bit about Jack Johnson's background before we get to the fighting, the really exciting part. John Arthur Johnson, or Jack, was born March 31st, 1878 in Galveston, Texas. His parents were former slaves who educated all six of their kids working as a school janitor and a laundress. And though Jack only had five years of schooling, he became a voracious student of history with a particular fondness for Napoleon. And he also played bass fiddle, loved classical music, and invented stuff. He invented, he had a patent on a wrench, I think. We should have put him in our earlier podcast on... uh, Unlikely inventors. Unlikely inventors. He would have been a good one. So as a kid, Johnson started fighting in battle royals, which were these really horrible sounding underground fights where a white audience would gather to watch a group of black boys fight round robin style until one champ remained. That champion would be able to collect, you know, a pretty modest purse of change that had been thrown on the stage. But from that sort of inauspicious start. Johnson worked his way up, moved up to fights with actual purses, and started riding the rails to barnstorm around the country and 
also helping more experienced boxers train as a, as a sparring partner. And as we already mentioned, blacks did fight whites. It just wasn't for that top spot. In fact, much of Johnson's defensive expertise, he could seemingly swat away punches very easily. And that came from practicing and training with Joe Choinsky after the two were jailed together for boxing in the first place. And just a note for you here, just a little side note. at the Boxing, turn of, context, boxing context for you guys. Exactly. Around the turn of the century, boxing was a popular sport with all classes of people, but but it was still a sport that was considered kind of illicit, even illegal in many places, despite the gloves, rules, and timed rounds. And with new techniques picked up from Joe, plus his naturally powerful punch and his six foot, one and a half inch frame, Johnson moved on to bigger cities and he eventually made up to $1,000 per fight. He was becoming a contender, but one who would never be allowed, or so a lot of people thought, to fight the heavyweight champion. But why? Why wasn't he allowed? And we're going to talk about that some. But first, I really want to recommend there's a fantastic Ken Burns documentary on Jack Johnson called Unforgivable Blackness. And for me, it really helped explain the racial politics behind boxing at the time. It's easy to find a lot of biographical information on Johnson, but it helped put some of that into context for me. So even though boxing was an illicit sport, I mean, people would campaign against its violence. The heavyweight championship was really kind of an upstanding position. It was well-respected. And John L. Sullivan, who was called the Boston Strong Boy, had a lot to do with the respect for that position. He was the first gloved heavyweight champion and really became a huge celebrity, kind of a sports hero long before sports heroes really existed. And he made the title something that was actually important to the general audience, almost a byword for the strongest man in the world. And he even bragged that he could beat anyone in the world, except, of course, it was understood African-Americans who he just would not fight. He refused to fight black boxers, drawing a color line after he became the heavyweight champion, since the heavyweight title represented more than just physical prowess or boxing expertise. It represented physical superiority to all other men. And so it had this really weighty social significance to it. And Sullivan's precedent continued with later heavyweight champs, all the way through Jim Jeffries, the Boilermaker, who had made his early name fighting some of the best black boxers of the day. And Jeffries was kind of the ultimate boxing specimen of that era. He was hairy-chested, he once drank a case of whiskey in two days, and he kept a bear as a pet. But even though up-and-coming Jack Johnson was winning against all other major black boxers of the time, clinching the unofficial Negro heavyweight championship, Jeffries wouldn't fight him. They instead engaged in a kind of battle of words and intimidation. After knocking out Jim Jeffries' brother, Jack, in an L.A. fight, Johnson told the spectator champ that he could beat him, too. Egging him on, really. And then in a San Francisco saloon, Jeffries, after Jackson had again said, why don't you fight me, Jeffries offered Jackson $25,000 on the bar to fight him completely alone in the cellar. You know, this really sketchy sounding scenario. Johnson refused that he was only going to fight him if it was a real fight. Finally, though, in 1905, the undefeated Jeffries decided that he was going to retire from boxing, retire and become an alfalfa farmer. And of course, though, retiring like that, he needed to 
um, crown a new champion, a new heavyweight champion. And so he refereed a bout between two white contenders and named the winner the new heavyweight champion. Johnson obviously was really mad that this had happened this way. He hadn't gotten his chance to fight the undisputed champion. And so he started still just going after the title any way he could, going after the new title holders. Eventually, that title holder was Tommy Burns, who was a Canadian born Noah Brusso. And Burns, like his predecessors, wouldn't fight Johnson either, though. So it, was, it seemed like it was going to be a losing battle. Yeah, but Johnson would relent. He followed Burns around the world, challenging him everywhere he went. And eventually it started to get embarrassing for Burns. Even though in some twisted logic, Burns would call Johnson yellow, even though he was the one yeah, refusing to I don't to get that. Him. I don't either. So he set what he thought would be an insurmountable barrier between him and Johnson. Burns said he wouldn't break the color line for less than $30,000. So he thought, okay, surely nobody's going to go for that. But sure enough, somebody did agree to pay that much. In the fall of 1908, Australian Hugh, known as Huge Deal Macintosh, agreed to put up the money and put on the fight. So Burns accepted the $30,000. Johnson, by the way, only got 5000 And their fight took place the day after Christmas 1908 in Sydney, Australia. So we're going to give you a brief play-by-play of how the fight went down. It started amid huge cheers for Burns and jeers for Johnson, even though, and you can see this in the footage, he was still blowing the crowd kisses quite kindly. Johnson had Burns on the floor within seconds. And even though Burns started to call Johnson racial slurs, Johnson really had a more effective way to um, anger or embarrass his opponent. He would point at spots on his own body, like on his side or on his stomach, just point at it with his glove, urging Burns to punch him there. And when Burns, after clearly a second of hesitation, like what on earth is going on here, would really punch him, Johnson wouldn't even flinch or react. I mean, really kind of stuff to psych him out. Johnson, meanwhile, would hug Burns, holding him up to keep him fighting when he was starting to get tired. By the 14th round, it was clear that Johnson was going to be the winner. Police stopped the fight and the cameras. You can see a freeze frame, the last the last second of the cameras rolling, and then Johnson was declared winner. They stopped the cameras because they didn't want to see, they didn't want everybody to see Johnson defeating this white guy. But it didn't matter if people saw it or not. At 30 years old, Johnson was the new heavyweight champion. So now it's time to start talking a little bit about Johnson's personal life, because it's what everyone else was doing at the time anyway. And if you've studied the Harlem Renaissance, read W.E. Du Bois, or even listened to our Marcus Garvey podcast, you've heard of the New Negro. A Michael Walsh article in the Smithsonian does a lot to put that era of the New Negro into context. It came after a dark post-Reconstruction era where Jim Crow laws codified segregation and lynchings really increased. And by the turn of the century, though, with the Great Migration providing African Americans with new opportunities in industrial work up north, things seemed to be looking up a little bit. The idea of the new Negro developed. They were born free, ready for opportunity, and not content to just hang back and wait. So Johnson was the epitome of that new Negro. He dressed immaculately, he lived finely, and he spoke freely. But for many African Americans, and certainly for many white Americans, he took things a little bit too far. 
He drank heavily. He raced and crashed fast cars. He had gold crowns. He got into arguments with the owners of the vaudeville theaters that he'd moonlight in. Most seriously, though, he dated white women who he would often meet at Chicago's fanciest bordello. When the news that the new champion Johnson was traveling around with a white companion, his hometown of Galveston canceled the big parade they had planned for him. So that was the big issue, and it's important to keep that one in mind as we go forward. But there was another issue going on for Johnson, too, one that was actually pertinent to boxing. Since the old champion, Jim Jeffries, had retired undefeated to his alfalfa farm, Some people began questioning whether Johnson was really a legitimate champion at all. Hadn't really bothered folks when when there were the white champions in between, but was bothering them now. So Johnson answered that he would fight Jeffries or anyone else who wanted to fight him. And almost immediately, the search to find that anyone who was considered or called the Great White Hope started. So seriously, anyone who was white could be a challenger. They'd come from the fields, from circuses, and if they finally got to Johnson, he'd steamroll them. And after running out of white hopes, Johnson took on his pal and drinking buddy Stanley Ketchell, the white middleweight champion of the world. And according to the Burns documentary, fight promoters dressed Ketchell up for photos in high-heeled cowboy boots and a bulky coat to make him look more comparable to Johnson. They also had each fighter promise something. So Ketchell promised that he wouldn't try to actually win and in the process wind up getting really badly hurt. He was much smaller. And Johnson promised that he wouldn't knock out Ketchell. Broken promises all around, however. Things did not go according to plan. Well, they did for a little bit. For the first part of the fight, it seemed like everybody was happy. It was going to turn out to be a great movie. The boxers could make a lot of money off of it. Everybody would be good. But in the 12th round, Ketchell really started trying to win, and he knocked down Johnson. As soon as he was up, that was obviously a huge mistake. As soon as he was up, Johnson knocked out Ketchell. In the process, knocking out all of his front teeth at the root, which is, I'm looking at, Dublina is cringing right now. Across it just the gives mic me chills. Me. It, it's maybe one of the more disturbing um, physical parts of this podcast, getting your teeth knocked out. Eventually, though, after all of these defeats of the Great White Hopes, the defeat of Ketchell, it was clear that there was only one legitimate contender out there for Johnson. That was, of course, Jim Jeffries, even though now he was 34, he was nearly 300 pounds, and he was seriously enjoying his alfalfa farming. He was enjoying retirement. He, however, had to be the great white hope, and eventually Jeffries agreed to come out of retirement and fight. U.S. Marshal Tex Rickard won the rights to promote what promised to be the fight of the century, and it was set for July 4, 1910. So each fighter would be paid $50,000, which is about $1.6 million today for film rights, plus a signing bonus of $10,000, and plus the winner would receive two-thirds of a $101,000 purse. The governor of California ended up banning the match, though, and after that, Rickard moved it to Reno, Nevada, where prize fighting was legal. Basically, still kind of a Wild Westish area, I it guess. It seemed like prize fighting was a civilized pursuit with all of its rules and gloves and people not usually getting killed. The only condition of this sudden venue switch was that the governor of Nevada had Rickard swear that the fight wasn't stacked. So Rickard did a lot to try to make sure that this 
fight was secure. He placed deputies at the arena's entrances who confiscated firearms from the crowd of 20,000. Celebrities in attendance included former champ John L. Sullivan and novelist slash sports commentator Jack London. There were even mock fights set up around the country with reenactors recreating the fight blow for blow. It really was the fight of the century at this point. But don't forget for a minute that the whole thing was largely about race. The Smithsonian article Dublina mentioned has a quote from the New York Times on the eve of the fight that read, if the black man wins, thousands and thousands of his ignorant brothers will misinterpret his victory as justifying claims to much more than physical equality with their white neighbors. Pretty serious stuff. So despite Jeffrey's rush training, though, and a massive sudden weight loss, he lost about 100 pounds. He was still favored over Johnson, 10 to 4. But Johnson wasn't worried. He was quoted as saying he felt like a kid on Christmas morning on the on the eve of the fight. This was, after all, what he had been waiting for, you know, not just achieving the championship, but defending it from any further claims. So now we're going to give you a little rundown of this particular fight. Jeffries refused to shake hands with Johnson right off the bat, and his corner man, former champ Gentleman Jim Corbett, whose defensive style Johnson had actually emulated, started a stream of racial slurs that lasted the entire match. According to an Ebony article by Lerone Bennett Jr., Johnson later remembered, quote, I sensed that most of the great audience was hostile to me, but despite the sun and the jeering mob and the occasional thought that there might be a gunman somewhere in that vast array of humanity— I was cool and perfectly at ease. I never had any doubt of the outcome. And if you watch the footage, it really looks that way, too. You can watch this uh, this match online and see the two fighters basically locked in it in an embrace with Johnson just lobbing one undercut after another at Jeffries. This is the part that stood out to me the most. Jeffries' head just bounces around every time he gets hit by Johnson. In the second round, Johnson told him, don't rush, Jim. I can do this all day. He asked Jeffries, how do you feel, Jim? How do you like it? Does it hurt? And by the end of the 14th round, Jeffries just looked horrifying. His nose was broken and gushing blood. His eyes were swollen. Even his legs are all stained with more blood. He looks really, really bad. In the 15th round, he was knocked down and then knocked down again, falling over the lower ropes that time. And at that point, the crowd started to cry for Jeffries not to be knocked out. They didn't want to see their formerly undefeated champion get knocked out by Johnson. So the fight was ended with Johnson declared the winner. And again, if you see the footage, it shows Johnson's cornermen quickly forming this defense circle around him, surrounding him to protect him from the furious crowd. Uh, Around the country, too, some people were celebrating, some were not. African Americans came out to celebrate, but race riots began pretty quickly, and up to 26 people died as a result of these race riots over a boxing match. But Jeffries, at least, concedes defeat really graciously. He later says, quote, Jack Johnson was better than I ever was and tells his friends that he couldn't have even beaten him in his prime. So kind of putting an end to any theorizing that, well, maybe if Jeffries had been younger and in better shape, things would have been different. 
So Johnson, now the undisputed champ, was unbeatable, except when it came to his private life, that is, which began to fall apart pretty quickly. He started drinking heavily, and he threatened to commit suicide. He was also treated for nervous exhaustion and was arrested for speeding. He established a color line of his own, too, no longer fighting black contenders since he considered them harder fights for not as much money. He also beat his wealthy girlfriend, Etta Duria, badly enough for her to be sent to the hospital. And after that, they married. But her sad life living upstairs from his black and tan Chicago club, Cafe de Champion, isolated from both black and white communities, drove her to commit suicide in September 1912. And Johnson was really inconsolable after that, but within only a month or so, he had paired up with a 19-year-old white prostitute named Lucille Cameron um, and drove with her across state lines. And so for all those people out there who were ready for Jack Johnson to just go away and stop causing so much trouble, finally, this was a way to eliminate him. So backing up a little bit, in 1910, Congress Congress had passed the Mann Act, which was originally established to ban the transport of women across state lines for immoral purposes. It was supposed to be something to stop human trafficking, but the Justice Department used it to attack Johnson. It was never meant to be something for two consenting adults traveling together to be you know, punished with. This was just their opportunity. It was. So Johnson was arrested October 18, 1912. He was released on bail, and in the intervening months, he married Lucille, the woman who he had been traveling with, and uh, she had already refused to testify against him. So with that turn of events, without her testimony, the case against Johnson was really worthless. So the Bureau of Investigation got involved in the whole thing, trying to find any evidence that Johnson had broken the Mann Act at some earlier point. Eventually, they connected with a former white bordello girlfriend of Johnson's who agreed to testify she had crossed state lines with him, even though they had done so before the Mann Act even existed. And Johnson is found guilty. He's sentenced to one year and one day in federal prison. But while he was out on bond pending appeal, Johnson just skipped town, very likely disguised as a member of a Negro League baseball team. He then fled to Montreal, rendezvoused with Lucille, and they took off together for Europe, where the reception was kind of icy. Yeah, especially considering he had been quite well received in Europe earlier. But after this bad press, after this conviction, people weren't so friendly to him anymore. Johnson defended threats to his title abroad, but he soon found it impossible to earn a living as a boxer in the middle of a war. So he began looking for a bigger payday. And back home, folks were still looking for a great white hope, a new one, because Johnson was, after all, still the heavyweight champion. Finally, on April 5, 1915, Johnson met with Kansas native Jess Willard, a six foot six, 27-year-old who had killed an opponent once with a punch. Since they couldn't fight in the U.S. due to Johnson's conviction, they fought in nearby Havana, Cuba. So Johnson, he, by this point, 37 years old, maybe not in the best shape anymore, and kind of taking things a little bit too lightly. He didn't train like his trainers wanted him to. 
by the 20th round of this fight with Jess Willard, which is happening in 105 degree heat too, Johnson was clearly getting tired. And by the 25th round, he asked his corner man to see that his wife got out safely, you know, told him, I'm probably not going to make it much longer. And then finally, in the 26th round, he lost to a knockout punch, another really famous freeze frame image of Johnson lying there on the ground with um, his arms thrown up over his head. So after losing the title at finally, his earning power was just completely slashed. And Johnson went back to Europe, toured a little bit more. When the U.S. entered the war, he offered to volunteer for U.S. service in exchange for a pardon. That didn't happen. He traveled on to Mexico. And then finally, in 1920, he was ready to go home after seven years on the run. He surrendered at the U.S. border and spent a year in Leavenworth prison. It wasn't a horrible prison situation considering he acted as a trustee, he trained other prisoners, he even staged a few exhibition matches while he was there. And probably my favorite detail of his prison experience, he listed his profession as pugilist chauffeur, uh, which in case it wasn't clear earlier, Johnson really liked fast cars and driving. So that was clearly important to him just right after boxing. And Johnson did keep boxing, but the Havana fight really was the end of the major part of his career. The new batch of heavyweights, again, wouldn't agree to cross that color line. So there wasn't a black heavyweight champ until Joe Lewis in 1937. And he was deliberately set up by his managers as a clean living, decent man. In other words, not a Jack Johnson. And that reminded me a little bit of an episode from a couple years ago, Katie and I did on Satchel Page, where Jackie Robinson was very much set up as an alternate to Satchel Paige, who had this flamboyant public personality, you know, a real jokester. He would entertain the crowds. Jackie Robinson was, you know, somebody who could keep his head down and go play Major League Baseball. So that reminded me a bit of that. But Johnson just did this huge range of activities in addition to his occasional boxing. He ran a Harlem club called Cafe Deluxe, which eventually became the Cotton Club. He appeared in IE. He married his third wife. He even preached. All sorts of stuff going on with him. In the spring of 1946, while returning from a tour of Texas, Johnson lost control of a speeding sports car near Raleigh, and he crashed into a telephone pole. So he died at age 68. And his record, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, was 114 bouts, winning 80, 45 of those by knockouts. And there was also a type of French artillery shell called Le Jack Johnson Johnson. that was named after him. (laughs) Two memoirs he wrote. And, of course, a Broadway play that was based on his life called The Great White Hope. It starred James Earl Jones. And apparently, Muhammad Ali was a repeat viewer of this play. He'd go back and really found a lot of comparisons to his own life and the way he was sometimes treated. Uh, Jack Johnson was also an original inductee into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990, along with a few other names we've mentioned in this podcast. Um, But I think it's probably only appropriate for a man who, in addition to... um, you know, being a great fighter, was known for some of his fantastic quotes and having the perfect response to sometimes difficult situations. 
ending the podcast with a quote of his own. He apparently told a newspaper reporter, you know, these newspaper reporters loved covering every aspect of Johnson's life. Whatever you write about me, just please remember that I'm a man and a good one. Well, I think that says it all. He was, uh, he definitely had some unsavory sides to his personality and to his life, but he was unapologetic for who he was and He wanted to live as professional boxers did at the time and everything that came with that, which was kind of being a bad boy, it seemed. Um, And that didn't really fit with the time he was living in. So I certainly enjoyed learning more about Jack Johnson. I won't always think of um, the Hawaiian singer now (laughs) when I hear the name. And uh, if you want to hear any more sports history topics, we realize I don't think we've covered anything since our Kentucky Derby episode. No, and that was a while back last May. So please send us some suggestions. Yeah, it's fun. It's always a good way to encapsulate grander stories in the context of sports. And I think it's especially interesting when we're covering black history, too, because sports with these rules that are clearly stated, for some reason, things seem so much more unfair when there's inequalities in sports just because the rules are so apparent. So anyway, if you have any kind of history topics, sports, black history, whatever, send them our way. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. Remember, our address has changed. We're also at Missed in History on Twitter, and we are on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the topic we talked about today, we have an article called How Boxing Works on our website, and you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 